0: You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, and today we'll be talking to teacher and author Andrew Watson about his book, The Goldilocks Map. We are excited to talk to Andrew today about questions to ask when someone says that a practice is research-based, evidence-based, or that it aligns with the science of reading. Keep listening to learn more.
1: Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We can't wait for today's episode because we are here with an educator and an author. He became interested in cognitive science and we found that his cognitive science work intersects with our literacy work in one very important way. I think it's skepticism. That's what I like to call it. <laughs>
0: like
1: so that. today our guest is going to teach us how to be a healthy skeptic.
0: Yes. So we have Andrew Watson with us today. He's a longtime English, high school English teacher. And he is now editor of the Learning and the Brain blog and the author of the Goldilocks map. And he's going to teach us how to be Discerning as we hear so much information from a lot of different people, especially about for us reading science um and also you know curricular materials, motivation strategies, all the things we hear about for for in education.
1: Yeah, so Andrew, welcome to the podcast. We're happy to have you.
2: oh uh, well, Lauren lussa, I'm so excited to be here, so thank you for inviting me to join the conversation.
1: Yes, and one of the things that kind of struck me is that this conversation I think can be applied anytime someone says something that makes you wonder is there research to support that which I find myself wondering a whole lot especially uh, you know looking at social media posts or looking reading research I mean reading some research yes. I'm like how do I know if this is valid like what tell me more about this study um, or if somebody makes like a bold claim uh, you know like I think you um, Andrew, you had mentioned you're in our pre-call. You mentioned that bold claim of, you know, shaking hands with your students as they enter the classroom increases connection and motivation, or whatever it might be. Um, So I'm excited to dive into all of that today. But before we do, because I have a bad habit of just jumping in, can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about yourself?
2: (laughs) Sure. Um, I'm always happy to talk about myself. Uh, As Melissa said, I'm a I'm a long time high school English teacher. I've probably been teaching, gosh, eighteen or 20 years now, Uh, and back in 2008, I read on the side of a cereal box that learning happens in the brain, (laughs) and you know because I'm an English teacher, no one had ever told me that that was exciting and new. Uh, And if that's true, and it it does seem to turn out to be true that learning happens in the brain, then maybe if we as teachers learn more about the brain, if we learn about the physical object, we call that neuroscience. Or if we learn about how the brain does stuff, you know, brain processes, we call that psychology. Uh, If we learn more about neuroscience and psychology, that will help us think differently about how students form long-term memories. And, of course, that's just a fancy way of saying that will help us help our students learn more. So um, I've been been doing this since 2008.
1: Well, that's fun. We love that.
2: Yeah, we do. It's fun and uh, at times uh, enlightening and at times a little alarming as I look back on things I used to do as a teacher. And I think, oh, wow, that seemed like a good idea at the time. But gosh, no, I'm not going to do that anymore.
0: Oh, That's what Lori and I do every oh, day, no. I think.
2: <laughs>
0: <Talk a bit. laughs> oh, I can't believe I did that.
2: <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, so we are going to talk a lot about your book today, The Goldilocks Map, or at least some of the ideas in the book. Before we jump in, oh. like Lori said, we we tend to jump in, but I want to talk just like how did you get to this stage of writing a book, and, and specifically this book?
2: So this book came about for a couple of reasons. This field, which brings together uh, education plus psychology plus neuroscience, has, has been around for a couple of decades now. And I, myself, as I said, I come to this field as a, as a classroom teacher. I was, a, I was an AM, a high school English teacher. Um, and what I found in these conversations is that in theory, these three fields get together and we all talk each other, talk with each other and make each other wiser. And the reality really is that what that means is that the psychologists and the neuroscientists tell teachers what to do. Because the brain does this, you should teach this way. Because the mind does this, you should teach this way. And I think often that's incredibly helpful and the ideas that those fields bring to us can be very useful. And it is also true that we as teachers bring a particular kind of expertise, a different kind of expertise to the conversation, and we should stand up for ourselves and we should be able to say, well, yes, thank you. I understand that your, say, neuroscience research says I should do this, but I got to tell you, my classroom teaching experience tells me I should not do that. Um, that That's a bad idea and here's why. So one of the goals of the book is to help teachers uh, feel like we are equal voices in this conversation because we really are and we really ought to be uh and more specifically than that melissa you mentioned that i write the blog for learning the brain um so what i used to do is i would see a research headline let's let's take this uh, example that Lori gave um shaking hands with your students as they enter the classroom increases attention and motivation so i'd see the newspaper headline and i'd say oh great i'll i'll write a blog post about that uh and just to be thorough you know i might as well i'll go and look at the research behind that claim and over and over again, I found, wait, what? That, actually, <laughs> the research doesn't even say that. Yeah. Or if the research does say that, um, here are all the reasons why maybe as a teacher, although this one research study does suggest something like that, that doesn't necessarily mean I should do it in my teaching context. And at first I thought, ooh, I just sort of by accident seemed to stumble mm-hmm. into this. But gosh, it's not an accident. <laughs> People who say... You should change the way you teach. Research says so regularly, frequently, alarmingly, quote, research, which really does not make that a persuasive claim in the world that we're in. So the, the point of the book is to help teachers uh, sift those claims apart. Sometimes those are great teaching ideas. We should do those. And sometimes they're not. Uh, and how do we tell the difference? And that's what I'm trying to help other people do.
0: I love that. I mean, how often do we hear Lori, Like, research says, research says. Oh my gosh! Just like, this morning
1: on Facebook, I, <laughs> nobody's going to know when we recorded this, so you won't know when. But I, <laughs> I went on Facebook. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if there's research to support this, you know. And and then I was thinking, Andrew, thank goodness for your podcast today because we are going to learn so much more about how to unpack this. But I, it, I just do think we're being inundated with information and evidence-based research all these buzzwords being thrown around, you know, that we're putting in quotations, and we just need to be able to understand, are these legitimate? And what, what is legitimate? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So there are three parts to this process. So three parts or three steps to the process of unpacking the legitimacy of research to understand it. And Andrew, if it's okay with you, I'm going to quickly go through those three steps and then we can kind of dive in a little bit more. Is that okay?
2: Yeah. Once we jump in, we can dive in.
1: Perfect. Yeah. We'll, we'll jump in first. (laughs) We, we use a lot of, um, (laughs) very active. Swimming technologies. (laughs) Very very active (laughs) words on this podcast. (laughs) All right. So step one, we're going to ask the question, what is the best research you know of that supports that idea? Step two, we're going to ask a couple more questions. We might ask who was in the research study? Who were the participants? What did they do? What happened? And step three kind of helps us gather information and put it together, right? Which direction does most of the research point us? So now that we kind of have like an overview of these steps, let's try out an example. So um, Andrew, I know that we, we talked about this example that you just gave very, very briefly. But if we can kind of take that from a little example and stretch it into a bigger example, can we pull it apart even more?
2: Sure. Okay. So this, this first question that you mentioned, um, you talked about three questions we ask, I think of these, uh, as three big categories of inquiry we're pursuing. And the first is, should I trust the person who's giving me the advice, someone has come and said, you should change the way you teach research says so? Well, do I trust them? Person, should I? Mm -hmm. And that's why this first question, what's the best research you know of, is such a helpful question because the way the person answers that question will help me decide well, do do I trust so and so? Do I not trust so and so? So let's say the claim is uh, shaking hands at the door increases motivation and attention. Okay, so I say, oh, thank you so much. What's the best research you know of that supports that claim? Uh, So I think of answers, there are right answers, there are wrong answers, and there are incomplete answers. So the right answer to the question, of course, is, <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you asked for research, here it is. That's what you're looking for, both you want the information and you want some enthusiasm. You want the person who's answering the question to be happy you asked, That's that would be great. Uh, the flip side of that is if you don't get both of those, if somebody says, well, I can't share research with you. Well, that's a terrible. <laughs> it doesn't make any that's, sense. You know, research says I should do this, but you can't share the research with me. And by right, the way, maybe the laughing. research it is has... secret.
1: That's that doesn't sound right. Why would there be secret <laughs> research?
2: <laughs> no, Lori, you're joking. But this happened to me. I, I was at a conference. A speaker made a claim. I emailed the speaker saying, "So interesting. What's the best research you know of?" And I swear to you, I'm not making this up. The speaker responded to me. Um, I can't share that research with you because you don't have a PhD in neuroscience.
1: Oh, wow. Burn. That's rude. And
2: <laughs> Well, it's, it's rude. It's preposterous. And it's ironic because the speaker doesn't have a PhD in neuroscience. Oh,
1: cool. Yes. Well, exactly. And I mean, research is available for
2: everyone right? right? when research I mean- is valid. Yes. So, um, so if somebody says I can't share it with you, that's a danger sign. I'll even say if they get grouchy with you, if you say what's the best research you know of and you and the answer you get back is, well, I don't know why you're asking, but here it is. Even if they're grouchy about it, that makes me nervous. I find that people who, who are grouchy when they answer the question or sarcastic or whatever, those people tend to give you research that doesn't hold up very right. anyway. well. There's
0: a reason they don't want to share it with you.
2: There's a <laughs> reason they're, they're not happy you asked. So – Right answer is yes, of course. Wrong answer is no, I won't share. There are several different incomplete answers, but I'll, I'll give one to you, and it's, it's the most common one, and it's the hardest one, I think, for us to wrap our heads around. So I mentioned a little while ago that there are different ways we can study the brain. We can think about it as, a, as an object, like it's a kidney or it's a lung or it's a muscle. It's a, it's a biological thing that has cells and blood and nerves and so forth. Um, So when we study the brain that way, we call it neuroscience. It's a physical biological object. Okay. Or we can study the process of what the brain is doing, like, say, paying attention, or feeling motivation, or feeling stress, or really importantly, learning something. So at that point, we're not talking about the brain as a bio, we're not talking about cells, we're talking about mental processes and that field for the most part isn't called neuroscience that field is called psychology and notice when i describe those two very different fields actually as teachers like the neuroscience is fascinating love learning about the amygdala (laughs) but it's the psychology that's useful i don't really need to know whether or not the cortisol did the thing in the hippocampus what I really need to know is, did my student learn? <laughs> I don't need to know whether or not there was more myelination. I need to know whether or not the student was paying attention. Yeah. So it tends to be the psychology concepts that are most important to me as the teacher. I'm fascinated by the neuroscience. And by the way, as a person, I love learning about neuroscience. But as a teacher, I don't actually really need it. And the reason this is an important distinction to draw is it happens a lot in this field that someone, if I say, uh, oh, I should shake hands, what, what research do you have? The answer is, well, it turns out if I shake hands, that increases the amount of oxytocin in the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> Okay, that's what
1: I was thinking. Okay, can you translate that for me?
0: And what What do I
2: do with that as a teacher? (laughs) What do we do with it? Because honestly, as a teacher, it is not my job to increase the amount of oxytocin (laughs) in my prefrontal cortex. It's my job to help them learn something. Right. So if they did research that found that handshakes do something to the dopamine in the ventral tegmental area, okay, I don't feel strongly one way or the other. I want to know, did they pay attention more? Did they cooperate more effectively? Did they ask better questions? Did they stay on task? Did they report being more interested? I'm interested in the psychology stuff, not the neuroscience stuff.
0: Andrew, real quick, I'm wondering, does the neuroscience tend to lead to the psychology? I'm thinking, like, because that happens in the brain, might that translate to more learning or paying attention or something like that? Like, does it?
2: So, Melissa, thank you for including the word might
0: in it. (laughs) The answer is, yes, it
2: might. But what happens, and the reason that I'm flagging this so strongly, is it happens a lot that people give neuroscience-based advice. uh, Shaking hands increases uh, oxytocin in the prefrontal cortex, and therefore you should do it. And they skip the intervening step. You know, that might be good. But until we actually stop and research whether or not it's good, then we shouldn't give that teaching advice and or in our case, you and I shouldn't take that teaching advice.
0: That's great.
2: So when I say it's an incomplete answer, if somebody says change the way you teach research says so, I say, what's the best research? They say, well, here's the stuff about the oxytocin. My answer would then be, oh, that's so helpful. I love the neuroscience. Do you have any psychology research to support that suggestion? And now we're back to where we started. If they say, "Well, you don't need that," okay, I'm done here. But if they say, "Oh gosh, that's such an important question." Here's the answer to the question. Here's the research. Now we're back on
0: track. Yeah. And I wonder, does if people do people tend to maybe put more stock into the neuroscience research because it's like, oh, I don't know, more sciencey science. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it sounds really fancy right. when you say it,
1: like. You're using big science words.
2: (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. And it's very sad. We live in a cultural moment when neuroscience has a great deal of cultural power. Mm. So if I can pronounce the phrase corpus callosum correctly, I sound so smart. The teacher really isn't allowed to disagree with me, even if there's actually no connection whatsoever between corpus callosum and what I'm talking about. Um, and it, in fact, uh, that 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 speaker who um, wouldn't share the research with me, the claim that speaker was making was about the corpus callosum. Um, <laughs> oh. But it doesn't matter that the speaker can say corpus callosum correctly. Uh, the speaker does have to share research. They, they, they really do.
1: Yeah. I think that's a good point that educators could be off put by that language. I mean, I know I'm not off, put because we've met you before and we're friends now and it's, you know, we're having a a conversation and learning together. But if I were at a conference and someone were using those words regularly and then also sharing what I should do in my teaching practice, that would feel really like, oh, okay, I guess I better listen to this person who has all of this information and using words that I don't, I'm going to have to go look up later, right? So they must be smarter than me rather than thinking, you know, I'm the practitioner in the classroom and this is a level playing field. Is that kind of it?
2: Thank you, Lori, for saying exactly the point that I'm trying to get at. Yes, neuroscientists have amazing information
1: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, and we are equal voices in the conversation. And just because you can say, you know, V5 doesn't mean that your understanding of the visual cortex is more important than my understanding of actually getting students to line up before recess. That's a skill. <laughs> it is a That's scary skill. important skill. <laughs> a very, and, important and, <laughs> it's very important one. It's very important what. And you, the neuroscientist, don't get to tell me how to do it. We get to have a conversation about it. But you actually never had eight-year-olds line up for recess. <laughs> so uh, we, we are equal voices, and I shouldn't be intimidated. I love oh, So
1: good. So good. Are
0: you ready for step two?
2: I'm ready for step two. All right. Uh, so step one, the big question was, do I trust the person giving me the advice? And I've given one question you can ask. And there are others, but that's a good place to start to find out. What, if I get good answers, I start trusting this person. So the next questions, in effect, are, does this research match the world that I'm in? So I'm a high school English teacher, and if you've done research with high school students or with English, great, that's helpful to me. But let's say you teach kindergarten, or what you're teaching is flute playing, or you know, I, uh, most of my teaching has been in Connecticut in the United States. What if the research that you did was in Brazil or in Iceland or in Korea or um, Botswana? Uh, each of these are very different cultural settings or different age groups or different subjects. So it's not always true. You know, it might be true that the research shows it, but it shows it for people who aren't useful analogs for my students. Mm. So, uh, the second set of questions to ask are, well, who exactly was in the research and what exactly did they, what exactly did they do? Um, So, for instance, to go to that, the best study I know of, actually the only study I know of about the handshaking thing, Um, uh, this was done with, I think, sixth graders, maybe seventh graders, and they were teachers whose, uh, the principal in the school had singled out these classes because the students were especially disruptive And the intervention was a two-part intervention. The the teacher greeted the students at the door by name, and uh, I'm going to use some technical language now, gave quote-unquote pre-corrective guidance. So what that means is if the problem yesterday uh, was you kept bothering your neighbor, I would say, hey, Melissa, it's so great to see you. Remember, keep your hands to yourself today. So I sort of warmed things up by reminding you not to go down that path. Hey, Laurie, wonderful to see you again. Uh, Be sure you've got your book out when we start the lesson. So I'm giving a little bit of pre-corrective guidance. Okay. And what they found is that in this one study that I know of, doing those two things helped. So, um, and I think pretty persuasively, I think it was a well-done study. So if I teach sixth or seventh graders who are disruptive, that sounds really helpful. But what if my students aren't particularly disruptive?
1: I'm also just imagining like kindergartners, you know.
2: (laughs) What about kindergartners? What about college students? Probably going to need to say the
1: same thing 20 times.
2: (laughs) It's true. And and notice also, there was no handshaking. There were two things. I I greeted you by name and I gave you pre-corrective guidance, but there was no handshaking. So is there research that handshakes at the door help? Um, Well, something at the door helped these particular students, but knowing who exactly they were and what exactly they did gives me as a teacher um, clearer guidance about whether or not I think, well, yeah, if this happened with these students, that makes sense for me to listen.
0: So... Just a quick question about that study in particular. Where did the handshaking come yeah. from? Like if the, if handshaking wasn't actually in the research, how did that become yeah. like the thing? <laughs>
2: Good question. So, uh, it, it, gosh, I wish I had a clearer answer.
0: <laughs> so, and it's um, okay if you don't. <laughs> we don't.
2: What happens is, you know, your teachers, you know this, we get excited about things. Look at how decorated the mm-hmm. door is. Uh, those videos of teachers who have individualized handshakes, yeah. you've seen yep. those, yes? Yep. They're so compelling. There's the dance and there's the twirl and there's the high five. Yeah, the fist Like bumps. It makes for such good television. <laughs> the fist bump, all that stuff. Um, it looks so good. It feels so good. Yeah. So I'm going to do it. And then I, I, I say to you, well, Melissa, do you know of any research? And you say, oh, yeah, I think it's this thing over here. Because you sort of heard about it at conference. Like there's something that happened at a door. Right. So that sounds right. <laughs> um, so it just sort of gets into the water that handshakes at the door are research-supported strategy. And I, by the way, I can't tell you with certainty it's not. It's entirely possible that someone has, in fact, directly researched that question yep. I've looked, and I'm usually pretty good at finding it, but I haven't found any. Um, So I'm not saying I'm sure it's good or bad. I'm saying that study gives me some confidence if I'm an eighth grade teacher in an American cultural context, working with students who are disruptive, greeting by name with pre-corrective guidance, that seemed to help for these students. Do handshakes help? Don't know. Kindergartners Don't know. College students? Don't know. Iceland? No. <laughs> um,
1: That's all very fair no. and honest. <laughs> yeah.
2: And in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll flip this around a little. The the people you should especially trust are the people who are leading with those limitations. Who will? Uh, Melissa says, well, is there any research behind it? And the speaker says, well, I got to be honest with you. We have research that shows this. So I'm extrapolating to say that, but I'm not sure how far it will. When the people acknowledge up front when the limitations are, now we start saying, okay, this is somebody who's being really scrupulous about the boundaries about their research-based suggestion. Yeah. Uh, And we really like people who are scrupulous
0: about that. That, Lori reminds me of the soundball conversation we had with Julia Lindsay, where she said, like, no, there is no research to support it yet. No one's done a study yet. But I see where people are getting it from with phonemic awareness instruction and research behind that. Go ahead and try it. (laughs) But right now, there's no research to support it. And I I like that she was just honest about it, right? Like, it doesn't mean you can't try it. But just know that as of now, no one has done research to support that.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I think it does do exactly what you just said, Andrew. It makes me feel like I can trust the person more when they're willing to say, I mean, and this obviously in research, but definitely in life, too. Like, I don't have all the answers. Right. <laughs> you know, I this is what I n- know to be sure As per this scenario, this study, this research, but I'm not sure about in another setting or I'm not sure about with other students. And I think naming those things that we're unsure about are the things that help you trust the people around you the most, especially when we're talking about important Uh, topics like in education that are can go a wall in a in a moment you know suddenly everybody's shaking hands and doing (laughs) a dance at the door and and we're entering the classroom but um you know you kind of whittled it down to the two very important pieces that the this the research showed worked and for this group of students and for you know for this teacher in this situation in this place and then we go from there
2: i love that um And one of the things that's implicit in what we're saying, but I want to make it explicit is, um, it is great to base teaching decisions on research. And it's also great to base teaching decisions on experience. If someone comes on your podcast and says, this is what I've been doing. The two of you are very experienced teachers. You've done this a lot. You've thought about this a lot. And if based on your experience, you say, wow, that makes sense to me love that. I'm going to go do that. I wouldn't say, well, there's no research to do it. I would say wonderful Two experienced folks think it's a great idea. Um, if the research, if somebody then does research and that contradicts your experience, that will turn into an interesting conversation and you get to be an equal part of that conversation. But the absence of research doesn't mean we can't move. We're teachers. We make decisions every day we should, we should do things if we think they're a good idea.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about that with the handshake, right? Like, even though, like you said, it's not in that research study, but maybe it's still something I want to try and see what happens in my classroom. Right. And maybe they, and there is a difference. Maybe there's not.
2: <laughs> yeah. And here's another variable we haven't talked about yet. It might work really well in your classroom because you're a handshaky kind of teacher, mm-hmm. but If I'm not that teacher, it's just going to look forced and ridiculous. Like if there I am shaking at the door and the students are clearly getting the vibe that I don't (laughs) want to touch them because they haven't washed their hands, they're going to pick up on
1: that. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That's what I was thinking about the whole time, Andrew. I'm not like, I don't really want to touch everybody's hands. Just in general, you know, I'd rather fist bump or elbow bump or do a dance or something. But whatever's authentic too, (laughs) that's a great point, right? Like it, it also... The research in that scenario forgets the teacher. Yeah, especially in, in our post-COVID days. Not, not the person. The person. <laughs> the po- yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> The mask wearing and the uh, handshaking, <laughs> the hand sanitizing. Right. We can yeah. do like a whole, a whole TikTok video <laughs> with this one.
2: Yeah, maybe instead of shaking hands on the way in, what we should do is sanitize each other's hands. <laughs> <laughs> hand sanitizer ritual that we do. Melissa, <laughs> get on the research with that. I it, it. Put a grand proposal together. Actually,
1: I feel like this is going to take us right into step three, which is you are going to ask the question, right? Which direction does most of the research point us? And maybe it is hand sanitizing. I don't know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So the first question was, do I trust this person? So we asked one question to find out whether or not I trust the person. The second question was getting at, well, does the research fit my particular context, including, as we've just said, my personality? The third question goes like this. Um, When we look at psychology research and use psychology research to make decisions about teaching. So learning is an incredibly complicated thing and teaching is an incredibly complicated thing and human beings are incredibly complicated things. So it's entirely possible for the three of us to get together and to do a study about using hand sanitizers at the door and to come up with an answer which because teaching is complicated learning is complicated people are complicated that our answer was valid the way we did it but actually nobody else ever got the same result we did that 10 other people did the same study and just kind of because people are different everybody else's answer was different from our answer that's not the system being broken that's just the nature of psychology that's the way human beings are that's the way teaching is not everybody's the
0: same
2: (laughs) uh, weirdly (laughs) not everybody's the same so (laughs) uh up to this point, we've been looking at just the one study. I said to the person, mm-hmm. "What's the stu- what's your what's the best study you know of?" And then I went and I looked at that one study to see who did what. So now I don't want to look at just one study. I want to see well, what does what's the range of studies say? So I'll give two uh, online resources to use. And again, there are many different ways to answer this question. I'll I'll give you two quick ones. I'm allowed to do that, right? I can give you websites.
1: Yeah, yes. absolutely.
2: Okay. We'll link them. Um, so the first, oh, great. Yep. Uh, the first is called SITe, uh, S-C-I-T-E, SITe, uh, And it's an artificial intelligence website. So it's S-C-I-T-E dot A-I. So what that does is if, if you put the paper into SITe, it then goes and um, s- checks to see, well, who else has looked at the same set of questions and do they more or less agree? So you'll find out, has anybody else researched this question? That would be helpful. So mm-hmm. if you get no other studies, well, that tells you something. If you get 100 other studies, that tells you something. And then you'll find out, well, do most other studies agree with this conclusion? Do most of them disagree with the conclusion? Uh, or is there some confusion in the field? Uh, and I typically find sort of um, because people are complicated, because you always get a range of answers, sort of a, a 5 to 1 or a 10 to 1 ratio is fine. So if I put in a study and it comes back that 20 studies agree with it, three studies disagree with it, and the rest are just citing it, they're not responding to it. Well, actually, 20 to 3 is pretty good. Like most of the research agrees with this one study that I've been looking at. So, gosh, that it didn't need to be zero. It's fine that there are three out there that disagree. But if it's 10 and 10, well, then I think, oh, wait a minute. Actually, there's controversy in the field. So, site is a very useful source. And the other uh, is a .com instead of a .ai. It's called connectedpapers.com, just like papers that are connected. So, connectedpapers.com. Uh, and that creates this cool spider web diagram. You put in um, you you put in the name of the paper and it thinks and thinks and thinks and it comes up with this spider web saying, okay, here are the people doing research in this field. Here's the the biggest circle is the is the study that's gotten the most attention. Uh, the darkest green circle is the one that's the most recent. And you can just start clicking around and saying, oh well what does the most cited study say? What does the most recent study say? What's the biggest outlier study? So you can start uh, just noodling around and see what you find. So you're no longer, we are no longer making a decision based on one paper. You know, this one guy did the one study about the shaking hands at the door. Well, what does everybody say about shaking hands at the door? And when I put that paper in those sources, the answer is nothing. Nobody say nothing about shaking hands at the door. But in most other cases, what I find is, oh gosh, lots of people are looking at this question uh, and either there's a clear answer pointing this way, or we kind of don't know the research is a muddle.
1: This is like rabbit hole time. Cause I, I, I think the, I, when you shared this with us <laughs> in the pre-call, I spent hours just searching and I was like, oh, I would find another thing I was reading. I'm like, oh, let me go. Let me go search connected papers for everybody listening. Our our listeners are so cu- curious and thoughtful. <laughs> Seriously, this is the way you want to spend your afternoon. <laughs> it's or really your morning, cool. <laughs> or your late it's the coolest thing ever.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think rabbit hole time is a perfect way to describe it. Be sure you've got the babysitter scheduled for a couple extra hours. Yeah. Because it's so... You can't stop. Yeah, but but there's one more study I have to look at,
0: and it really like lays it out in a way that's really easy to find. You know, you -hmm. know, I I feel like it could it it could feel really daunting, (laughs) but the Mm -hmm. the way that those you know it's visually laid out and you can see what's connected to what it's so cool.
2: (laughs) Yeah, brilliant. And I suspect both of those sources are relative. I'll say maybe three years old. I'm not even sure about that. So I. Frankly, rather suspect that others like that will be cropping up. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that happened. That'd be great. So, I'm giving you those two because I use them several times a week, both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also have my eyes out because I'm guessing there will be more like them, and I'm looking forward <laughs> what, to what other cool thing the interwebs can do for us.
0: You'll have to forward them when you find them. (laughs) So
2: the big picture for me is if I feel I can trust the person who's giving me the advice because they answered the question well, when I asked what the best research was and I look at the study and it lines up pretty nicely with the world that I'm in and I check the field to say, well, not just what does this one study say, but what do many studies say? If I get good answers to all of those questions, I'm thinking, okay, now when so-and-so says change the way you do, you know, go ahead and shake hands at the door. I think, oh, well, gosh, I really should for these, for those three reasons.
0: Yeah. Ah, This is so, so helpful. (laughs) I'm wondering, Andrew, are you ready to talk a little bit about literacy with us? Because we have a a literacy-specific topic that we might want to run by your your steps. Yeah, this this will be fun because <laughs>
2: uh, because I'm a high school uh, English teacher, uh, I benefit greatly from the work that you. Uh, and other people who have taught reading uh, have done. But I myself have never taught anybody to read, so I'm excited, <laughs> to, um, so I'm excited to do this uh, investigation with you.
1: Well, yeah, well, we're excited. Yeah, Thank you we are. for being here with us. <laughs> we chose a hot topic. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. I don't know that it'll
0: follow your steps okay. exactly, but we'll, we'll we'll throw out what we got. Um, but the, okay. the topic that Laurie and I picked was around this idea of independent reading. And I think it's a really uh-huh. hot topic because... You know, the time that you have with your students is very limited. And so how you use that time, there's a lot of debate around, you know, if I have my students just sit with a book and read for 20 minutes, is that a valuable use of that time? Uh-huh. And there's a lot of debate about it. <laughs> so we actually uh-huh. we, we looked at um, an article that was written by Tim Shanahan um, and he had a uh-huh. listener question. So the listener wrote in and said that in her graduate program, she learned that there was research evidence that showed that kids who read the most become the best readers. So that's where that's where this started. <laughs> was, yes, there is research evidence that shows that kids who read the most become the best readers.
2: So shall we So shall we shall we play our game? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my first question would be that sounds fascinating. Uh sh- what shall we call what shall we call this person?
1: You wanna come up with a name? Uh teacher Shall we
2: call her Lucy? Yeah, Lucy. Lucy's sure. That's great.
1: Okay. Great. I was gonna say great. teacher friend, but yeah, Lucy. Let's give her teacher a name. Name, okay. name. Teacher her.
2: friend Lucy. Oh, oh teacher friend Lucy. That sounds so helpful. Uh what um, what's the best research that you know of that supports the uh, supports the idea? It makes intuitive sense, doesn't it? Uh, but what research is there that shows that um, the students who read the most become the best readers?
0: Yeah, so I don't I don't have a specific one. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but hmm. I think we can safely say that there there are some there are okay. some definite studies that show what she just said, which was that kids who read the most become the best readers. There are there are some out there.
1: <laughs> and there are okay. cor- it's, they're correlational studies, right, Melissa? That's what we want to name that.
0: Yeah, I think that gets into the step two of like <laughs> the studies.
1: <Okay.
2: laughs> so at this point, our, um, our decision tree is going to fork a little bit. So Lucy is a longtime friend of mine, it sounds like, and I, I trust and respect your judgment. Is that true? Yeah,
0: and sh- I mean, sure. she got it from her professor in grad school. So I feel like.
2: Oh, so I'm going to transgress <laughs> a little bit. I got some terrible teaching advice uh, from professors in my graduate too, school. So um, it, it's one of the reasons.
1: No shade that- on professors, though. There's a range. There's a range. There is.
2: Oh, there's definitely. A range. Yes.
1: I just I got said. some marvelous teaching advice as well. 100%. Um, <laughs> both. Both ends of the spectrum.
2: So one of the advantages of these questions is if you just. Stick to them and maybe be a little nudgy about it. It can really inform your decision making. So if I've worked with Lucy for years, I trust her judgment. She's somebody who's teaching advice. Like her students learn to read. Okay, I'm in. If Lucy is somebody who's speaking at a conference and she's saying, well, you really need to adopt this practice. Like I've never met her before. I don't don't know her. Like she has a credential. Okay, fine. Um, she says up at the podium at the conference, she says, we really need to uh, give students time to read independently research shows. And if I say, what's the research? And she says, well, I really don't know. I'm sorry. Uh, you'd be done. I think if you are giving, I'd be done. If you are giving me quote unquote research based teaching advice and you can't name the research.
0: Okay. Well, I found one for uh, you. Let's go. I'm going to give you one okay. so we can move to step two. <laughs> All right. So okay, there's great. a study by Kane and Oak Hill, 2011, mm-hmm. that showed the mm-hmm. um, reading experience aids vocabulary development and reading comprehension.
2: Okay. So this is fantastic. So what happened right there, we, I got a little bit nudgy. I was really insistent <laughs> and said, no, no, I, I really want to answer the question. So boop, pop, we got an answer to the question. So now we can investigate... The specifics of that claim. So you can can you read that again for me? What yep. what's the claim? So,
0: the reading experience, a, mm-hmm. it it shows an increase in vocabulary development and reading comprehension.
2: Okay, so the initial claim was that experienced readers are the best readers.
0: The readers that read um, read the most are the best best readers.
2: Okay, it's like so qu- qu- your-
1: quantity. is what I'm hearing. It's quantity-based.
2: So in your experience, is it true that vocabulary development and understanding of content, like those were the conclusions of this study, is that a reasonable definition of good reading? If they've got better vocabulary and they understand the ideas of the story better, is that a useful way of saying, well, yeah, that's a good reader?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Okay. I, th- so, I mean, I again, think for I- all
2: intents of general purposes, we could yeah. agree with that. Yeah. 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 So, as a, as a non expert, I hear that and I think, oh gosh, that sounds plausible, but not an expert. So I wanted to check in with the experts and be sure that that's a that's a reasonable way of thinking about it. Um, okay. So this study claims that more time reading develops vocabulary and reading comprehension. Uh, does it say who uh, who who is it? Yep.
0: Older students. Which included uh-huh. um, students who were eight, 11, 14, and 16.:
1: That's quite a range, and actually.
2: It is quite a range. <laughs> I don't
1: know if I'm allowed presumably... to comment that. <laughs> I'm like, am I throwing us
2: off? That just: <laughs> Well, this is uh, this is, goes back to something Melissa said a little while ago that we might not follow the path directly. I've laid out the path as if it were direct, but it almost never is. You start here and this, the answer to this question makes you think about step four. And then when you think about step four, you're back at step two all of a sudden. So it's perfectly normal to bop around like this. So I'm going to guess that the reason they check, you said 16 year olds. The reason they check with the 16 year olds is to see is what happened when they were, uh, what they did when they were eight does that make a difference for what they did when they were eighteen?
0: Yeah, it does say it's
1: a longitudinal study. So,
0: ooh,
2: okay.
1: And so, I just to kind of name this: we're in step two, right, Andrew? Like we're saying, like, yes, we're who in was two. in the research? What did they do? What happened? Okay, so we've moved yeah, from one. So we're into we're kind of muddling around in step two.
2: <laughs> yes. Right, because at first in step one, and this happens a lot, by the way. Uh, so a uh, speaker made a claim. I asked question, my first question, and the speaker pushed back and said, I don't want to ask the question. And I stuck to my guns and said, no, you got to answer the question. And the speaker answered the question. So there was a little, was a little pause in there, but I'm going to keep going because i got an answer to my question. Uh, so now we're in in part two, and we're deciding, does this research fit me? So what this is saying, it sounds like, is that what I did with my eight-year-olds made a difference for them when they became 16-year-olds.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Is that what it's Correct. saying? Correct. Uh, and how much reading instruction is still going on when you're eight? That's we're still right in the heart of reading instruction, aren't we?
1: We are. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. A, a good amount of of time in the school day, is, I, I would say, anywhere like 120 minutes of reading instruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Okay. Does it say anywhere what they measured? Um, was it how much time was independent reading? Was it how much time was reading instruction?
0: I don't I don't see exactly what they measured there, but I might need to just read it closer. (laughs) Don't don't blame the researchers here. This might be a me.
2: (laughs) Right. So we've actually hit a really helpful, interesting moment here where usually finding out who the who question is usually really easy. There's usually a section called procedure. I'm sorry, called participants. Uh Uh-huh. And the participant says these people participated. Mm-hmm. It's usually a paragraph. It will say I worked with 127 college students. 60% of them were women. They were taking. They were enrolled in an introductory psychology class. Uh, maybe they'll give demographic information. Maybe they'll say some of them were diagnosed with ADHD. Maybe they'll say some of them are on free and reduced price lunch. You'll get. Some information. Okay. So that's usually pretty straightforward. So it's not surprising that it was easy to find 8, 10, 12, 16, that's participants. Finding out what they did, um, that's going to be probably in a section called procedures. And I'm not sure what I'm about to say is true, but I think (laughs) it's true. I think the goal of the procedures section is that, Melissa, you and Lori be able to read the procedures section and reproduce exactly what the researchers did. And because I think that's the goal, they are incredibly tedious and detailed.
1: Mm -hmm. This is ringing a bell from my college. (laughs) So I would, I think this is sounding accurate, but we'll do some, we'll do some post show research on that too.
2: (laughs) So, you know, if they're having children read things from screens, they will say it was on a Dell monitor that had a 27-inch diameter. We used Arial font at 36-point size. They'll tell you how far away the chair was positioned from the monitor. Like, the details are, uh, it's gruesomely complete. (laughs) So uh, perhaps it's not totally surprising it's hard to find that. But at this point, Melissa, what I'd be interested in is, well, the claim is more time-independent reading leads to better readers later Mm -hmm. on. So did this study actually investigate independent readers? So
0: this is because I found some if, things. For oh, me. you found it. Okay. Oh,
2: <laughs> this, this is, is exciting. This is
0: really interesting. So what they actually studied in terms of the independent reading was out mm-hmm. outside of the school day. And it was reported by the students and parents. But they found that the children found it hard to do the estimation. So it was mostly from the parents estimation of to- not not just the total hours of reading time but also things like visiting the library reading with their parents even um time watching television which i don't know if that's like a like
1: they weren't is reading like if, you have P- if you have pbs <laughs> on this counts d- but like, I, like you have- I don't know if it counts <laughs> <Nick> jr or- <laughs> doesn't count <laughs> yeah but so, that's what they were kind of looking at yes. was like the
0: outside of school literacy environment which is not what i would have thought Based on the claim. Right, from the, from
1: the claim. I, right.
2: Yeah. So we've identified an interesting gap, haven't we? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact... Oh, uh, let's pretend for a moment it's true that more outside reading at home leads to better reading comprehension. Does that therefore mean we should devote in-school time to independent reading?
1: That's a really good question. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not... Well, I don't think we can use this study to help us answer that question.
2: Right. And and will it matter, for instance, if I work in a school district where, let's be honest, the families are really focused on reading, so they're doing lots of independent reading at home. If they're doing lots of independent reading at home, maybe they don't need to do it at school. That's fine. But maybe if that's not my school district, maybe actually independent reading time would be an investment But that's a specific question that this study doesn't answer. Mm -hmm. So I can't use this study to answer that question.
0: And I'm just going to throw in another to push this even further. So the findings here in this study were basically like, if you were a better reader to start Mm -hmm. with when you were eight, there was more time reading. And that stayed the same when they got older. They were still a better reader and they still spent more time reading. (laughs) And that's where Laurie and I were talking about earlier is that doesn't necessarily show that the more time led them to be a better reader. It could also mean that because I'm a better reader, I like to read more. So I spend more time doing it, (laughs) right? Like you don't know which one is influencing which, and that's this study would support that, that there's a correlation, but what's causing what we don't really know.
2: Yeah. And that's a really helpful, this is, I think, one of the reasons I think slowing down and asking these questions is helpful because it forces us to look. The idea of independent reading in class, I suspect, is very tempting. I know as a student, I, I loved did
0: independent it reading. <laughs> as a teacher. <laughs> oh,
2: love it. So it sounds so appealing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like we're empowering the students. Like there, there are lots of good words I could put yeah. on it. But when we get around to saying, well, research shows this is true, this study doesn't show that because it's not asking that question. So the next step, if we want to go to the next step, maybe we don't, would be... Mm -hmm.
0: uh,
2: You could either put that study in site and or connected papers and see, well, does connected papers, for instance, start pointing you towards studies that do look at that question? Mm -hmm. Or another... um, Resource we haven't talked about, but I'll mention right now, uh, is called uh, Google Scholar, which is just scholar.google.com, which is basically Google for academic research. So if you go into Google Scholar and type in um, independent reading benefits, I'm making this <laughs> up. What do you get? Does that combination of words generate? research from within Google Scholar. And at this point, just use your everyday search skills. Sort of keep putting words in and see what you find. Take those results, put them into connected papers. Take those results and put them into site. And start using those, I think, Laura, you called it rabbit hole
1: time. Have some rabbit hole time.
2: (laughs) That's right, have yourself some rabbit hole time. Uh, And see, now that I found I can't use this study to answer that question, well, can I find some other study that answers that right. question? Because it seems, again, not a reading teacher H- has this question been researched? It sounds—it's such an obvious strategy. It must have been researched, no? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And
0: this is where Tim Shanahan's article came in handy because he did some of that for oh, us. Oh, Great. Oh, great. <laughs> um, and basically, what he said that that you know that there there are studies that studied both, and that people in studies did find that you know your reading achievement usually did predict how much time you spent reading independently right so if i'm a if i'm a stronger uh, reader i tend to read more on my own i have i will spend more time reading but studies trying to go the other way did not have significant results so there weren't like if i give you more time to read it didn't necessarily show an improvement in your reading
2: and let me keep going with the logic of that so here i am i'm not a very good reader you give me time to read independently. I don't really want to read right. independently. <laughs> so during that time, you know, I'll sit here with my book reading, right. but, you know, probably I'm doing something else. Whereas if instead what you did was use your experts as teachers of reading and taught me to read better, the result would be I'd get better at reading and I'd like it more. So then I would spend more reading. So it's the teacher expertise of being a good reading teacher that's going to be the, um, that's the force that's going to change the skill at reading, not just more time doing the thing that I start back.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's what I think Lori and I would both agree with. Um, yeah. I, I like that um, a quote from Tim Shanahan in that article was like, so far, no one has conducted a study showing unambiguously that we can increase kids' amount of reading and that those increases will lead to higher reading comprehension. And that's sort of what you said earlier. Like, maybe there is a way that we can do that that will work. But as of right now, there are no studies that unequivocally show that that is helpful.
1: Yeah.
2: And one, it's really wonderful to hear how this plays out in the world of of reading instruction, because I think of this in all kinds of instruction. If I'm a math teacher, some of my students will like math and be good at math and some won't. My skill as a math teacher is most important for the people who don't like it and who are bad at it. People who like it and are good at it, they already like it. They're already good at it. They don't need me to be a good teacher for them. It's the ones who are bad at it because they don't like it. They need me to be a good teacher. Right. So in reading instruction or, you know, um, if, if I had a uh, someone who could coach me to play baseball well, that would be great. I'm a terrible baseball player. Um, I actually don't have good depth perception, <laughs> so it's very hard to hit things and catch things. Um, but I, I didn't practice my baseball a lot because I was terrible at it. Yeah. I was embarrassed.
0: Laura and I, we were talking. We were talking uh, about baseball, weren't we?
1: Yeah, we had a little metaphor that we were thinking about. We were like, when we like when we take our kids to sports practice, we don't just take them to sports practice, drop them at the field, and they just practice baseball the whole. Pr- they're not like, okay, go do baseball, guys. Go ahead, go ahead, run over there, and you're going to practice baseball for the next two hours, <laughs> like over and over again, the whole time. We help them. Like, what the practice actually looks like is a series of small drills where then they're working on the skills that they need to play the game and they're pulling it apart they're working on it. They're diving in. I know we're, we're doing a lot of swimming today. We should be talking about swimming <laughs> rather than baseball, but they're pra- right. They're practicing the different skills that they need. Maybe they're practicing scooping up a grounder or practicing pitching. Right. If you're a pitcher and your form, and I don't know enough about baseball to say probably anything else about that, but they're, they're working on the skills that they need to play the greater game. Yeah. And then maybe at the end, they're having a little scrimmage where they're, they're trying to put into play the specific skill and working on those specific skills, but but they're not also saying, like, don't forget about the other skills. They're like, remember everything, you know, you know about <laughs> playing baseball. Also, we worked on, like you said, Andrew, like that uh, pre what was it? The When they you entered the door, you did a pre correction.
2: Oh, pre corrective guidance.
1: Remember, we worked on this and this today. So when we're playing in this the scrimmage or this drill or we're going to we're going to work on this in as we scrimmage each other at the end tonight. Let's go ahead. Now we can apply it to the whole game of baseball rather than uh, trying to just play baseball the whole time or read the whole time or (laughs) write the whole time. Like just writing doesn't make you a better (laughs) writer. I mean, we could apply this to anything. (laughs) Right. And as you get better, right, as you get better at all
0: those skills, you probably want to play more and are more likely to play more because you like it. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. So really, I'm glad glad that that study, you picked that study because that was a fun one to it's such a tempting idea. It sounds so, so lovely. Tempting. I bet it's, I bet it's empowering. Um, but, uh, just cause it has a nice label attached to it doesn't mean it's a good idea and certainly doesn't mean there's research behind the suggestion. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah I feel, Andrew, I feel like we should have like a little series with you on like different literacy hot <laughs> topics and you, ha- you could be the, comp- like, cause really it's so <laughs> genuine. You're like, I mean this, you know, pulling through everything because you don't have the I mean, you don't have the specific background knowledge that we have on reading. You have a different knowledge set that helps you ask really good questions know, to help I us like think through. I love it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that. It's, they are fun conversations I have. I'm not an expert. It's a strange expertise that I have. I'm increasingly an expert in helping people interrogate expert-based, research-based claims. And I don't need to have lots of specific Expertise in the particular thing because you're here. You can tell me whether or not, <clears throat> you know, uh, those two things, what was it, vocabulary development and reading comprehension? Yeah. That sounds like a good definition of good reader to me, but you might say, oh Lord, there are four other steps. <laughs> <made me> <laughs> at the four other steps.
1: Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, this is awesome. I'm so glad that we got to talk about this today and have so much fun both learning about how to be better skeptics about research, but also applying it to something that we love to talk about, which is reading and writing and all that good stuff. So thank yeah, you for being here you. today, Andrew.
2: Yeah, it's uh, I really appreciate the invitation. It's um, I, I've learned a lot today. So <laughs> I hope this perspective has been helpful. to yeah, yeah, I learned a lot too. Thank
1: you. And we'll be sure in our show notes to link your book as well as everything that we've talked about today. Um, Melissa, do we want to do our closing questions? Close it out with do you have time Andrew? for a couple of questions, Andrew?
2: I have time for a couple of questions. All
1: right. <laughs> start us off, Laurie? All right. I do. So, Andrew, quick question round. What do you love oh. to read?
2: Oh, wow. Uh, I read fiction and history. Um, I-, I love learning stuff. So I've always got at least two history books going. So
0: cool. What do you love to watch?
2: Um... Series on Netflix like Modern Family or um, House of the Dread, like multiple seasons and rich characters. (laughs) Those things we love. And we're also big theater. We're we're big theater goers. So we we see as many places we can. Oh, that's great.
1: (laughs) Melissa was just talking about in a different episode uh, your love of Broadway musical. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I forgot about that.
2: Yeah, I actually just heard about. I don't mean to to, to side rail the questions here. An immersive production of Macbeth that lasts for hours—like you go into that into the hotel.
0: I feel like that could be sort of traumatizing. <laughs>
2: yes, the, the person I was talking to, I was having coffee just before the podcast. He was there for like six oh hours. Oh my gosh! And they actually, they have in the basement of the abandoned hotel is a bar. So if you're like overwhelmed by the sensory <laughs> overload of the production of Macbeth, you can go, go take a break, just like hang out and chill. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And then go back. Um,
1: this is fun. You know what? I'm going to try to find that and link it. That
2: would be really funny. <laughs> yeah. I'll see if I can get the name. Yes. Um, That's awesome.
1: The, Please do. That would production. be fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What do you love to listen to?
2: Oh, I do lots of books on tape. I'm a big book on Me tape too. person. Um, I'm listening right now to a book my mother recommended called gene. It's about the history, the, the science history of our understanding of genes and what they do and what the ethical questions are and how the science that, um, studies them has developed over time. Uh, so it's been a, it's a fascinating read. I was listening to it as I was driving back from my, from my, uh, coffee where I heard about this amazing (laughs) Macbeth production. Very cool.
0: All right. Last question, a little deeper. Why do you do uh-huh. what you love for education?
2: Uh, how long an answer? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I grew up in a family that was transformed by education. Uh, my, Especially on my father's side of the family, his life possibilities changed radically when schooling changed them. And I think that meant that I grew up with a, such a deep sense of what education can do for individuals and for societies. Um, I didn't think they wanted me to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. I think they wanted me to let my education turn me into whatever I wanted to be. But I think the message I took away from that was the most important thing is the education that creates that possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love learning things. I like knowing things. I admire people who know things. And the chance to work, I don't know why high school, for some reason, that's an age group that I really click with, but working with adolescents, both as they're figuring out their eyes are watching God or how to write a good paragraph or whatever it is, but also as they're figuring out who they are and Mm -hmm. how they want to be in the world with each other and with academic content, there's a... There's a vibrancy to that human experience, which is, uh, although deeply exhausting, (laughs) uh, uh, profoundly energizing and profoundly meaningful.
1: I think a lot of teachers would agree with you right now because we're planning oh, yeah. this podcast to launch uh, what mid midish September mid, in the fall. We'll say yeah. in the fall, and I think a lot of teachers are probably also feeling exhausted by all the people, <laughs> big and small, that are surrounding them.
2: Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's at the end of the day, you cannot believe you are going to get it, get up, and do it again the next day. <laughs> yeah. But you walk in the classroom, and it's just so like they got it. They got it. I can't believe they got it. It's so exciting. I love that. Well,
1: thank you so much. This is such an important conversation because we're just surrounded and inundated by quote research. So we need to be able to be skeptical about it and figure out, you know, what's right. What's, what's valid. What's not Valid. And who do we trust? I love this. I feel like your next book should be like for tweens and teens, like just based on your first idea.
2: (laughs) Who Who do we trust? And thank the two of you for, for making this connection because to be spreading this particular kind of work into the field of, you know, is there a more important thing that schools do than teach people to read? It's hard to imagine what that, that thing would be. And for your particular audience to have this perspective uh, to the degree that it can help in their work to help people read. Uh, it, it can have profound ramifications, and I'm excited to be a part of it. I'm glad you're doing it. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Andrew.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content.
0: We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and
1: Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our literacy lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us.
2: The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of BrainMind's PBC or its employees.